Hey, Unnaturalists. I'm Emily. I'm Andy. And a welcome back to Unnatural for part two of the Eyeball Killer. I'm excited because I have no idea what's coming in this one. And you left us at the edge of our seat. We had to wait a whole week. And now I'm ready to go. Sorry. But we are going to pick up right where we left off last week. We talked about Charles Albright and his somewhat questionable upbringing, his fascination with taxidermy, criminal history, marriage, separation, divorce, the death of his parents. And if you haven't listened to part one, definitely go back and do that to get some background information. And we will see you right back here when you're done with that. If you have listened to part one, let's get into part two of Charles Albright, the eyeball killer. Just a little refresher for everyone. We are hanging out in the Oak Cliff neighborhood of Dallas, Texas in the late 80s and early 90s. Now, at this point in time, it really wasn't safe for sex workers, um, specifically prostitutes. This is still true for today all over the place, but that's something that's a discussion that we can have a different day. Because especially back in these days and in the area, prostitutes were known to be robbed, beaten, kidnapped, and even murdered. And as we see today and back then, murdered sex workers don't really get the attention they deserve because they are just looked at as less than. Yeah. How many cases have we covered that show that? Even recent cases. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's dumb. Like, your profession should not have any bearing on how well a crime against you is investigated. Yeah. But we could go down that rabbit hole and talk about it for hours. But I think we will save people the trouble of listening to us monologue about all of that. Things in this area, though, did take a turn on December 13th, 1990, when 33-year-old Mary Lou Pratt was found dead and posed near the end of a relatively undeveloped street. She was nude from the waist down, her arms and legs were spread, and her top was pulled up, exposing her breasts. The man who lived on the street who found her that morning went and covered her up with a bedsheet until police arrived. Now, do we know if she was, ar- I'm sorry, do we know if she was sexually assaulted or? I, you know, I never saw anything in any of the sources mentioned about that, but I don't know if they would necessarily know because they do find out relatively quickly that she was a sex worker and how, I mean, right. I guess I don't know if there's a way to tell if there's a difference between like consensual sex and non-consensual sex. I know, I know there is, but uh, it can often get a little murky. Yeah. 
When police arrived on scene, um, her face and chest were bruised, indicating that she had been severely beaten. She was shot in the head at close range, but there was no blood, leading them to believe that this was a dump site and not where the murder actually occurred. One of the officers recognized her as a known prostitute who worked the streets of the Oak Cliff neighborhood near the Star Motel. And this motel was like a real hot spot for prostitutes and sex workers. Right. Mary Lou's body was brought in for autopsy. And um, the ME, Dr. Elizabeth Peacock, didn't really find anything to amiss until she lifted up one of her eyelids and realized that her eye was missing. And at first, she thought that maybe this was because of the gunshot and the bullet just like kind of hit her eye and something happened to it. But once she lifted up the other eyelid, she realized that both eyes had been removed like precisely and surgically. Like all of the muscles that hold your eyeball in your eye yeah. socket. There's a bunch of ligaments and stuff. Yeah. I know. All of that was deliberately cut. There was no damage to her eyelids, to her face. So clearly they were dealing with somebody who was very experienced and they kind of suspected a doctor or a surgeon was responsible for this just because of how well for lack of a better word, the eyeballs were removed from her head. I imagine you have to have basic knowledge of human anatomy to be able to pull like something like that off. Yeah, absolutely. So John Matthews and Regina Smith were police officers who often patrolled the streets in this area. Regina was one of the officers who arrived to the scene and she did actually recognize Mary um, from working in that area. And we'll see later that these two are kind of the heroes of the story, but we're not going to get too far ahead of ourselves. Well, I did want to mention that Regina specifically did feel a lot of empathy for the street workers in this area. She often talked to them, learned their stories. She tried to help them get back on their feet and off drugs and kind of off the streets however she could. But because most of the girls were addicted to drugs, homeless, didn't really feel like they had any other options, it didn't really work out too hot, but she did still try to support them. How, how often do you see a cop like that empathizing you know, with the people on the streets? You just don't hear things like that very often. So she must have been quite a lady. Yeah, it's not often enough. It sounds like it. Like, she's a freaking badass. On December 17th, 1990, just days after Mary Lou's body had been discovered, Regina crossed paths with a known prostitute, Veronica Rodriguez. Like I said, she was a known prostitute. Regina had been involved with her on several occasions, but Regina did notice that on this particular day, Veronica looked a little more disheveled than usual. Her hair was really dirty and messed up. She had scratches on her arms and on her face. And Veronica did tell Regina and John that she and Mary had been, quote unquote, doing a double, meaning that um, a man had hired both of them at the same time. And Veronica said that the guy had attacked them both, but she was able to escape and ran to a nearby truck driver for help. But the man and Mary were already gone. She described the attacker as white, possibly Mexican, salt and pepper hair and a muscular build which 
this is not much help because that could have described half of the men who yeah. hired sex workers in the area. Doesn't exactly narrow it down. Not much, especially when you're dealing with such a large city like yeah. Dallas. Um, and Veronica was not really a super reliable source either because she was a known drug addict. Uh, she had sometimes scrambled her stories when she had been interviewed and questioned. Sometimes she said she saw Mary get shot. Sometimes she said she hadn't. So what actually happened wasn't super reliable or known. Then a few weeks later, on December 10th, 1991, another body had been discovered just a few blocks away from where Mary Pratt's body was found. This body was identified as 27-year-old Beth Peterson. She was also a sex worker. She worked in the same area as Mary near that area, like in the Oak Cliff neighborhood near that motel. Regina also knew her. Uh, she was found partially nude with her arms and legs spread, but she had been shot three times. Once on the top of her head, once in her left breast, and once in the back of the head. Makes you wonder which but, one of those shots came first. The back of the head, you think? I don't know. If he came up from behind? I don't know. I'm just... I'm putting myself in the detective mode. Well, I mean, it sounds like it sounds like he hires them, gets them in the car, so like, would it really matter where he shot them? I guess not, no. No. Her eyes had been removed in the same manner as Mary's, surgically, meticulously, specifically. And now the police are like, we have a quote-unquote repeater. But they knew that there was a likelihood that a serial killer was on the loose. Are you intrigued by the dark side of things like murder, kidnapping, and sex cults? What about when the criminal is your favorite musician or actor or director or writer? Hollywood might look like all glitz and glamour until you take a closer look. But I'll tell you one thing, that kind of point of view can make you more vulnerable. From Roman Polanski to Mackenzie Phillips to Judith Barcy to Kurt Cobain, some are predators, and some are prey. I'm Dee Dee West, and I just might ruin your childhood. Follow my podcast, Broken Limelight, where I cover celebrity true crime stories. For more information, visit BrokenLimelight.com. Again, that's Broken Limelight. Follow it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. And though Regina and John weren't officially on the case because they weren't technically homicide detectives, they still did what they could to help. They spent the next several days and weeks talking to the girls who worked in the neighborhood and near the motel. They put up flyers warning the girls not to work, and if they did have to work to be as safe as possible, travel in pairs, do their best to vet the men who were trying to hire them. 
Um, They did leave the eyeball fact out to avoid panic from the public, and I'm, I'm sure that was also just kind of a strategic move on the detective's part as well. And that makes sense, because once people hear about the eyeballs, I mean, it just turns into probably hysteria, mass hysteria in the area. Yeah, well, we've seen that with a lot of serial killers, even who didn't remove eyeballs. Like, people get panicky, they get nervous. I would. If it, if I had a serial killer in my area, I mean, I've never experienced that. But if you're living in a certain area and there's a serial killer among you at the time, still at large, I can't imagine what the... I don't think I would leave my house. Yeah. Or I would just absolutely... I would go anywhere else. Right. Yeah. Time for that vacation to Italy. Peace out. <laughs> if any of our Italian listeners would like to uh, provide accommodations for us, I'd be okay. Yeah, hit us up in the DMs. <laughs> so not long after the discovery of Susan's body, the officers ran into Veronica again, and this time she was with a man, a trick, if you will. A John. A John. And she was like, no, 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 no. Please don't arrest this man. He was the one who saved me. He's the truck driver. Please don't hurt him. Blah, 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 blah. And this man's name was Axton Schindler. Doesn't sound like a very nice name. No, I kind of wonder what he looks like. I tried to find a picture, but I couldn't find one. Um, his driver's license said that he lived at 1035 El Dorado Avenue. Remember this because it will be relevant later. And this address was coincidentally not very far away from where the two bodies were found. He was questioned, but they didn't really have anything to hold him on. But he did remain a person of interest. Now, even though a lot of the girls were warned not to work because the because the two victims were white, a lot of the black sex workers in the area had assumed they were safer. But unfortunately, they were wrong. Because on March 10th, 1991, the body of Shirley Williams, an African-American prostitute, was found dead. Now, unlike the others, it seemed like Shirley didn't exclusively work on the streets. She was married and had a young daughter. She worked as a housekeeper at the Avalon Motel, and her family apparently had no idea that she was turning tricks in the evening hours. Can you imagine? I mean, so she's found dead. The authorities come to you to let you know and then drop that bombshell as well. Holy shit. Yeah. Absolutely wild. And her family said that when she had left the house the morning before she was found dead, she was wearing a yellow raincoat, jeans, and a white shirt. A waitress found her lying near an elementary school propped up against the curb. Now, this dumped site was about nine miles away from the other two bodies, but because of like the lack of blood around, it was also clear that this was a dump site, not actually where she was killed. But Shirley, however, shown signs of struggle. She had cuts around her eyes on her face. She had defensive wounds on her arm and a broken nose. Um, she was shot in the face and through the top of the head. And her eyes were also missing and cut out in the same way the other two were. So he's continuing to take these trophies. Yeah. Obviously his MO at this point. 
Yeah, and I and um, there was a few different things about this scene. So either he was getting lazy, or maybe he was really thrown off by how hard she fought back, hmm. because they found an unopened condom package, kind of like thrown down near her body. And then while they were doing an autopsy, they found the tip of an exacto knife embedded in her skull near her eye. Oh, so that's what he was using. Yeah. So this was big for the investigators because they now realize that Shirley's eyes and likely the other two um, women's eyes had been removed with an exacto knife. Now, if you remember, they were originally like really thinking that a doctor or a surgeon had been doing this, but an exacto knife isn't really the tool you would think a doctor or a surgeon would go for. So they were kind of getting away from that theory, but they still knew that obviously this they were dealing with someone with an extensive knowledge in anatomy. Or maybe taxidermy. Maybe. They also found a couple of head hairs that did not belong to Shirley clutched in her left hand and also a pubic hair on the back of her neck, which is just kind of icky. Why is that there? Right. But it sounds like she put up a fight. I mean, if she had hair in her hand, she was fighting for her life. She absolutely was. I assume the other two were too, but maybe they were taken by surprise. Who knows? But um Shirley was definitely the one with the most visible defensive wounds. I hope for their sakes that he took their eyes out after he killed them. Yeah, and I'm not sure. I never read anything in any of the sources if they were removed post-mortem or not. God. I can't imagine what that would be like if, if you're still alive. Oh, my God. Sounds like a horror movie. None for me. But now the three bodies had stacked up... And of different races, a lot of the girls who worked in the area in Oak Cliff and near the Star Motel decided to go elsewhere, found a new way to make money. Peace out. Um, they just, yeah, they were really like, okay, there's there's been three. This is, you know, this is not safe. But a lot of the girls did still stick around, unfortunately, because I'm sure, you know, like they didn't have anywhere to go. This is how they make their money. Incoming Brenda White, another black sex worker in the area. Brenda had told the two officers that she had been picked up by a guy and they had agreed to go to a location so she could perform her services. But once they got on the road, he started to drive in the opposite direction and she was like, absolutely not screamed for him to let her out and she said she wasn't sure if he was going to let her out so she ended up jumping from the car while it was still moving it's got some uh, weepy voice killer vibes yeah and like she made it out of the car and she said the man got out and chased after her and was yelling quote i hate whores i'm gonna kill all of you motherfucking whores Now, he's chasing after her, and he almost caught up to her, but luckily she had a can of pepper spray with her, and she sprayed him in the face and was able to get away. Thank God she had that. Yeah, right? Like, always carry something. Always carry something, whether, like, you're, like, lacing your fingers in... Your fingers, what? You're lacing your keys in between your finger, 
buy one of those like cute keychains, pepper spray, always have something with you and ready if you're going to be walking alone at night. So she described him as white, salt and pepper hair, wearing cowboy boots, and he drove a dark station wagon. Mm. Now, even though this is a pretty not specific uh, description. There's some more clues, at least. Yeah. This was a little bit of a light bulb moment with the salt and pepper hair for the investigators. And Regina and John, at this point in time, are kind of taking it upon themselves to investigate since the official homicide investigation wasn't really getting anywhere. So they partnered up with Dallas County Deputy Walter Cook. And even though the salt and pepper hair wasn't a great description for our buddy from before, Axton Schindler... They decided to look into him anyway, and his address was listed. El Dorado? Well, we know that his address was listed as 1035 El Dorado Avenue because that's what was on his license, but they did discover that that home was owned by Fred Albright. Ooh, connection. Do you remember from episode one what Charles's dad's name was? Fred. Yes. Oh, my God. But nothing in the records mentioned Axton living there. And they did find that this Fred Albright actually owned multiple properties in Cotton Valley in the area, which is very close to where the first two bodies were found. And then wouldn't you know it, Fred Albright is dead. But Walter Cook, our good buddy, recognized that last name because he had dealt with a case Sometime prior, dealing with a friend of Mary Pratt, who said she had dated a man named Charles Albright. Ding, ding, ding. Now, this woman said, yeah, this woman said that Charles was really nice. He had hired her and they kind of dated, but he did become violent and he would like press on her eyes Uh. during things and she just wasn't into it well she also mentioned i can't fucking imagine somebody doing that to me yeah no none if that's your kink get the fuck out that hurts have you ever just kind of like pushed on your eyes yeah it doesn't it hurts like you don't have to put a lot of pressure on your eyes for that to hurt this woman also said that the man had a concerning amount of knives, specifically exacto knives in his home and guns. So she felt really uncomfortable. It was all the bad vibes. So they're like, hmm, I wonder what the deal with Charles Albright is. And when she know it, he had a pretty darn lengthy criminal record, if you remember that mm-hmm. from episode one. Now, Charles is 57 years old at this time. And his crimes included, but were not limited to, theft, forgery, burglary, molestation. He served time in prison. And if you looked at his mugshot and his license photo, he had salt and pepper hair. And his address was also listed as 1035 El Dorado Dorado Drive. Oh, I thought it was Drive. Avenue. Street. It's Avenue. Avenue. Okay. So the police officers put Charles's mugshot in a lineup and showed both Brenda and Veronica, and each of them picked out Charles's photo as the man who attacked them. Can I get a ding, ding, ding? Ding, 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 ding. He should have dyed his hair before he got his mugshot taken. Well, 
criminal, you know, Hindsight's many criminals 2020. have never been accused of being intelligent. Hindsight is twenty twenty. Yes, sight, eyes, stares. You're doing great. <laughs> Thank you. So just after 2 a.m. on March 23rd, 1991, a team armed with flashbang grenades entered the home on El Dorado Avenue and took custody of Charles Albright. Regina and John were there to arrest him, and he was charged with three counts of murder. Now, Charles' girlfriend, Dixie, because remember, they lived together. She was like, the fuck is going on? Right. And uh, they did execute a search of the home. They found several exacto knives, army books, true crime books, including Ed Kemper, the Ypsilanti Ripper, Ted Bundy, the Texas Baby Murders. They also found several newspaper clippings about the three murders, like any area newspaper that wrote about one of these murders, there was a clipping of it. Another they thing we see all the time. Yeah. Anytime there's a serial killer among, you know, still out there at large, they love seeing people write about them. Yeah. They also found several guns hidden in the wall by the fireplace, but none of them matched the murder weapons. Or the murder weapon. Um, they didn't find any eyeballs, but they did discover that he also had a storage unit, which was searched. And in there, they found all of his taxidermy equipment, more exacto knives, some of his taxidermied animals, as well as wet specimen jars filled with frogs, salamanders, that kind of thing. But again, no eyeballs or really any solid evidence linking him to the crime. You other know. Than these knives you know he was keeping them somewhere in he had yeah. he had jars and jars of eyeballs in formaldehyde somewhere who the hell knows Probably. where they are to this day maybe the animals got to him or something who knows who knows but since they figured out that he was quite skilled in taxidermy that proved that he could have had the skills needed to remove the eyeballs in the women with such precision right so now that they had someone behind bars, Regina and John went back out on the streets and um, because Charles was in jail, some of the women working in the area kind of got a little bit more comfortable talking. Several women ended up picking Charles out in a lineup as someone who had hired them. Many of the women said that he was nice to them, bought them food, but he did have really weird sexual requests. Um, one that came up frequently was that he liked to beat them with rope. Uh. Yeah, nothing that I saw really mentioned eyeballs or violence. I was going to say, than- did they mention that he would press on their eyes too or not? No, okay. not that I read. But then there was a gal named Tina Connolly who saw his photo and said that she and Shirley were picked up by him on the night she went missing and was eventually murdered. She said they attacked both of them, but she was able to escape. And Tina brought the officers to the field where he had taken them. And it was in that field where they found Shirley's yellow raincoat in a pile of garbage. Aww. Yeah. So analysis of the coat showed that there was blood, but the DNA was too degraded from being outside in the elements for so long that they couldn't definitively match it with 
Shirley, but I think her family did confirm that, yes, that was her coat. Um, They also found animal hair on the coat, which belonged to a squirrel, which matched some of one of the squirrels in that had been taxidermied in Charles's storage unit. Poor squirrel. Yeah. The hairs in Shirley's hand were also a match to Charles. And of course, Charles, Charles was like, well, I didn't do it. I've never touched an eyeball. I've never been with a hooker, let alone killed one. Like, it wasn't me. Now, as you can imagine, obviously, all of this evidence is very circumstantial. Remember, it is 1991, so DNA certainly isn't what it is today. Right. And throughout the trial, um, Charles's lawyer argued that it was, in fact, Axton who committed the murders. But Axton was interviewed, interrogated several times. They really couldn't find anything to definitively link him. Plus, as far as they could tell, he had no background that would have given him the skills necessary to remove the eyeballs. But it is kind of interesting that Axton did disappear the week of the trial and was never seen again. Really? Mm-hmm. So that's a little sus. I wonder what happened to him. I wonder who took him out. Well, I mean, maybe maybe he was a witness and he did get taken out. Yeah. You know? Maybe he was involved and he ran. He could have been an accomplice, yeah. Because cause that's what I was thinking. I mean, because in two of these stories, for sure... Maybe um, one of them, probably for sure. Two of them, high likelihood, they picked up two girls. So I kind of wonder if like Axton wasn't involved because why would Charles think that he was going to be able to take two of them? Yeah. But then at the same time, Tina and Veronica didn't mention another person. It would make sense if they were involved together. Just the fact that they live at the same address, that they both have proclivities for prostitutes. I don't know. I could I could see him somehow being an accomplice. Maybe he saw something he wasn't supposed to the first time and got wrapped up into it. Who knows? I guess we never will. Yeah, we, we never will. So the trial lasted a few weeks and the jury did ultimately find Charles guilty in the murder of Shirley Williams. The evidence was just so circumstantial that they really couldn't find him guilty in the other two. I mean, there was really no evidence other than the eyeballs missing in the other two that really could have linked him. Yeah. But he was found guilty in Shirley's murder and he was sentenced to life in prison. Now, some do speculate if Charles really was the killer because several prostitutes in the area went missing and were murdered after him being incarcerated, but none, as far as I could tell, had their eyes removed. And that is just a sad thing that comes with prostitution, especially in bigger cities. Um, yeah. You know, and like tons of them had gone missing and were murdered right. prior to this. So um, I don't know, but Charles did maintain his innocence until the day he died on August 22nd, 2020 at the West Texas Regional Medical Facility in Lubbock, Texas. Do, do we know how he died? No. Okay. Just with the date, I was wondering if it was COVID, but... Yeah, I tried to find out if it was COVID or if he was sick or if he was old because he was 87. Okay. So... Just natural causes. 
Yeah. He's just, he died. If I was ever in the same room with him, I would tell him to go sit in the fucking cornea. On that note, assuming you do have your eyeballs stuck in your head where they belong, come look at what there is to see on our social medias. You can do that on Twitter, Unnatural the Pod, Instagram, Unnatural the Podcast. We have a Facebook page, Unnatural, a true crime podcast. We also have a Patreon set up where you can get early access to ad-free episodes, bonus content, and more. That is patreon.com slash unnatural the pod. And as always, please be sure to rate, subscribe, follow, and share us with your friends. If you leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, send us a screenshot to any of the above mentioned. We will send you a free sticker. And we have a surprise, Emily. What's the surprise? Because we're so excited to be back for season three, we're going to drop an extra bonus episode on Friday. Woo! Hey! We love a bonus episode. We love a Friday. I am just... It's September, so fall is coming. It's spooky season. Halloween. We get to get ready for Haunty Spook Spook Part 2. In just a couple weeks, it's going to be a really great season. I'm super excited. I hope you all are too. We will talk to you on Friday. But in the meantime, remember to make good choices. And don't get got. Bye. I wonder if there were any eyewitnesses, though. She must have been quite a lady. Yeah, it's not often enough. It sounds like it. Like, she's a freaking badass. She probably considered them her pupils. Pupil. On December 17th, 1990. Do you know why the eye doctor always takes the elevator? Because he hates the stairs. What'd you think of that one? Huh? Do you know why the eye doctor always... Because he hates the stairs. Dumb pun. (laughs) (laughs) Can you touch... Can you touch your eyeball? Like, are you one of those people that can, like, move it around? I can't do that. Ah! Ugh. Well... (laughs) What was that? Listed as 1035 El Dorado Drive. Oh, I thought it was Drive. Avenue. Street. It's Avenue. Avenue. Okay. Maybe it's a lane. According to the book that I read about this case, it was Avenue. It'd just be great if every single time you say a different thing, like street, lane, and then see if our listeners catch it. Well, I tried that the first time we <laughs> recorded this episode, and then I had to rewrite my notes, Emily, so I made sure. this is the first time we've recorded this episode. That's why I'm sounding so shocked at everything you say. <laughs> that that right there, I can tell, is <laughs> that's going to go at the very end as the music finishes. <laughs> In fact, maybe that should be like the intro of Haunty Spook Spook. Get 
kawaga down with the Halloween. Get up, kawaga down with the spooky season. Get up, kawaga down with the ghosties. Was that an original? Because yeah. I know that's a disturbed song, but. Oh my god. <laughs> we need to record that. I, we are recording. Oh yeah. I, I got that is documented. I got a guitar. I can think of a riff for it. I was hanging out with my uh, 17 year old nephew, and it was so weird because he refused to take his glasses off. And you know why? He said he was waiting for adult supervision. <laughs> <laughs> 